I'd like to welcome you all to the first public event of the uh, season of events for the academic year 2007-8 here at the Center for the Study of Human Rights uh, at LSE. I'm sorry we've started a little late, uh, but there were quite a lot of pressures arising from the great numbers that are in the room. I'd like especially to welcome our new students uh, and our guests from out of the school who will be beginning to realize quite how special the events series are or is at LSE, an opportunity to hear figures from around the world, from all walks of life, engage in not only the presentation of their ideas, but in the question and answer sessions that follow uh, events that are open to all and which reflect LSE's commitment to a society based on discussion, discourse, and sometimes art. But, of course, listening to exceptional speakers comes with obligations, and these include our obligation to allow speakers to be heard and to follow up with robust questions after the talk. And there will be plenty of opportunity for questions and answers. Now, this uh, first of our talks, as the title makes clear, is concerned with environment and climate change and looking in particular at the case of Rwanda. Africa generally, of course, has had quite an experience of slow economic growth and in the past great abuses of human rights, sometimes also in the present, regrettably. And the Republic of Rwanda has had direct experience of these problems and also how to deal with them. Uh, this event is part of a wider engagement that LSE has launched on the question of climate change in Africa, uh, and we're hoping to proceed with further meetings which will culminate in a conference in Rwanda in March 2008. Now, our guest is His Excellency Paul Kagame, the President of Rwanda. He uh, has been born in Rwanda, though had to leave early uh, in, uh, as a result of uh, unrest and persecution but he returned, and after the terrible events in 1994, he was appointed Vice President and Minister for Defense. Uh, in April 2003, His Excellency Paul Kagame won a landslide victory in the first ever democratically contested multi-party elections in Rwanda. He's also been elected first Vice President of the African Union, and he's secured numerous awards, the 2003 Global Leadership Award by the Young Presidents Organization, the Andrews Young Medal for Capitalism and Social Progress by Georgia State University, and he has honorary degrees of Doctors in Law at the University of the Pacific in the USA. I should mention he also holds, I'm told, I haven't checked with them, a diploma in professional management and business studies from the Open University, so has some experience of British university education firsthand. Uh, his country has recently, after a period of consultation and debate through its parliament, abolished the death penalty, one of a number of initiatives in the field of human rights uh, that his country has been to the fore in pushing through. His topic tonight is more general, the challenges of development and environmental sustainability in Africa, the case of Rwanda, His Excellency, the President of Rwanda, Paul Kagame.
thank you, Professor Konogete, Director of the Center for Human Rights. Distinguished ladies and gentlemen, I'm honored to address such a distinguished audience at this great knowledge center this evening. I especially thank Mr. Howard Davis, Director of the London School of Economics, for inviting me to talk about the challenges of development and environmental sustainability in Africa. I'm aware of the enviable record of LSE in many disciplines and the many distinguished speakers who have graced these halls before me. Let me also note that I'm pleased to learn that some of you are keen researchers in environmental matters and that a number of you collaborate with one and, and other institutions. I appreciate this effort very much. I will comment on this relationship later in my remarks. Take the elevator to the fifth floor. Distinguished ladies and gentlemen. No, you go here around to your left. Exactly. Humanity faces the double challenge of creating wealth to improve lives while conserving the environment. We cannot do one without the other. These two tasks are especially daunting in Africa, given our particular our continent's development during the last 40 years has neither created adequate wealth for lifting people out of poverty nor paid sufficient attention to the vital balance between human demands and environmental protection. But I can assure the audience that we in Africa now fully appreciate the interconnectedness of development and the environment yeah. and the futility of confronting one challenge while ignoring the other. I'll argue today that significant progress in that direction is being realized in Africa. There's an event Ladies and gentlemen, as well. I'm not exactly sure what it is. The African development story since independence oh, was indeed a case of forced Maybe the other stewards know on the monitor in that, the sense that successful social, economic, and political transformation assumes a strong partnership of at least three healthy national actors, namely the state, business, and civil society. For all the many debates about development, it is really about effective states and institutions, business, communities, and civil society operating in a legally bound and predictable environment bonded together 
by a shared purpose on what their society and country aspire to become. And it is about each of these national actors undertaking respective responsibility. With the government ensuring the broad legal and conducive investment environment and intervening in the economy strategically where business is unable or unwilling. It's about entrepreneurs and their enterprises having the means and the confidence to create wealth through their business, talent, and innovation. And it's about grassroots civic leadership providing the glue that binds society together, offering both a safety valve and a sounding board for local interests to unite around national development ambitions and goals. Lastly, development is about the availability of professionals and technical expertise that can sustain all sectors and fields in the public, private, and in course, third sectors, together with educational and training institutions that supply knowledge and skill. The term false start in Africa then refers to the fact that at independence the status of these national actors ranged from weak to non-existent. Let us recall that when colonial rule ended in Africa over 40 years ago, even the relatively well-to-do countries reflected several fundamental weaknesses. For example, organized civil society hardly existed. The authoritarian colonial state often obstructed the rise of a vibrant civil society. In any event, in the context of the colonial economy, most Africans had hardly been brought into the enclave of formal monetized economy. Even the few urban workers that existed still shuttled between rural and, civil, uh, and city habitats. There was not much of an indigenous private sector and entrepreneurial class either. Besides sector-based parastatal bodies, the task of creating wealth largely resided in the hands of the descendants of small immigrant communities that had historically engaged in commerce, trade, and enterprise. As an agency for spearheading development, the story of the colonial state is all too familiar. It was more or less a standalone entity that existed side by side with a vast rural hinterland. Most grave of all colonial flaws was the absence of a critical mass of professional and technical expertise. At independence, 
most African countries do not have sufficient medical doctors, engineers, accountants. Indeed, most nations were virtually devoid of university and tertiary graduates. Distinguished audience, into this virtue stepped the first generation of African leaders, some of whom were people of vision and commitment. But as well as, as, as we all know, realizing a vision is not a matter of a single individual, and in the absence of strong public and private institutions, the story of Africa became too familiar. By the late 1960s, through the early 1990s, our continent had become famous for coups, counter-coups, and one-party states. Africa had by now almost become synonymous with the personalized institutions and bad leadership as well as politics. The external environment became part of the problem. Billions upon billions of dollars were disbursed by competing powers to their respective client states, primarily to pedal influence, not for development. These internal and external factors account for the exceedingly poor socioeconomic indicators on the African continent, featuring high, featuring high mortality rates, low life expectancy, inadequate access to education, low literacy rates, and food insecurity. Therefore, the term lost decades accurately describes these realities. Ladies and gentlemen, it would be extremely naive to think that environmental conservation in Africa would even have been on the radar of policymakers or rather or other stakeholders in the conditions just outlined. African people had a struggle for basic survival by any means necessary. The environment progressively suffered as the demand for food, fuel, and grazing increased steadily over the decades. The use of our main resource, land, went, for, went far beyond the limit, so to speak, resulting over the years in inconceivable degradation, while yields from subsistence agriculture that sustained most African communities declined. This explains chronic localized food shortages 
which were compounded by both conflict and drought that had become almost permanent features. As the saying goes, nature can be very forgiving, but not forever. Humanity has abused the environment, and in our case in Africa, human and livestock populations have degraded the continents, landmass far beyond its carrying capacity. Scientists say that there are virtually no inhabit inhabited areas of Africa that are presently not prone to soil and environmental degradation. As illustrated by deforestation and desertification, all of which have adversely affected food and agricultural productivity and production. It is apparent, therefore, that we Africans have become trapped in an enviable position in as far as development and environment are concerned. In the absence of effective leadership to address the environment during the last decades, we became, by default, the architects of environmental degradation as well as victims of this legacy. Distinguished ladies and gentlemen, it is certainly no longer gloom and doom in Africa, however. Since the late 1980s and early 1990s, our continent has been undergoing significant changes that continue to usher in democratic governance in different parts of the African continent. Peace, security and stability are providing the required preconditions for building viable economies. The immediate challenge is to foster domestic entrepreneurship and attracting a larger share of foreign direct investment. It is also vital that we begin to secure the sort of investment that aims beyond the extraction of raw materials, processing or adding value to products is the proven way of creating economic growth, greater employment, and long-term prosperity. This is an urgent development necessity, especially when you consider, for example, that in the 400 million people common market for Eastern and Southern Africa, of which Rwanda is a member, an estimated 83% of our exports comprise raw materials. This percentage becomes even much higher when we remove two countries that are relatively industrialized. 
this common market has 20 countries, but if you remove two of them, that's mainly Egypt and Kenya, then you have even the worst situation. This may explain our seeming acceptance of aid dependence that supplements our mega productive capacities. Aid can only be useful as a temporary reprieve that enables a particular country to build the foundation for earning its own way in the global marketplace on the basis of productivity, competitiveness, and trade, aid can achieve little else. Relying on raw materials, material exports, is effectively a poverty trap and a sure way of perpetuating aid dependence. Clearly, we need to change this situation in Africa urgently. Distinguished ladies and gentlemen, escaping the poverty trap also demands that we strengthen regional and continental infrastructure. The weakness of these facilities has historically hindered trade and investment in Africa. For example, in Rwanda, we have to move our imports and exports over hundreds of kilometers either through Kenya's or Tanzania's roads and ports. The absence of a rail link to, uh, to Rwanda means that our exports and imports are hamstrung by high costs. But let me assure you that we are working with our partners in the region to put together the bits in the jigsaw needed to deal with these constraints to trade, investment, growth, and ultimately development. In this respect, we can point to the existence of institutions for forging a continental shared purpose, including the African Union and its program, the New Partnership for African Development. Regional institutions created to foster integration are also very vital. These institutions, however, must be rendered effective and focused. Similarly, we need to invigorate Africa's knowledge institutions to provide the necessary critical mass of expertise. Without this, we cannot develop and sustain adequate capacity in key areas and risk depending forever on expensive but not necessarily effective foreign technical assistance. It may surprise you 
that this dependence results in over US $5 billion in loans and grants to Africa involving more than 100,000 consultants annually. Distinguished guests, let me return to the environment. I acknowledge that Africa has to do more and move faster. We must urgently undertake several key actions. First, we must formulate and implement policies on land use and management, supported by legislation and strong enforcement mechanisms. Second, we must build effective institutions and provide regulatory frameworks for monitoring, supervising, and coordinating the conservation of our natural resources. Third, the environmental conservation agenda has to constitute an integral part of development strategies. This is because successful environmental protection is one that is owned by the broader community and whose lives must simultaneously improve if they are to become part of the solution. Fourth, a critical mass of professional and technical cadres has to be created and retained for successful execution of both development and environmental policies. Technical assistance will not suffice. The outlined actions may sound like a tall order, but they are all basic necessities for enabling Africa to become relevant in world trade, investment, flaws, and environmental protection. Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, in the case of Rwanda, we are now in the 14th year of building an entirely new nation since bad leadership and genocide ideology plunged our country into the worst crisis imaginable one that resulted in the death of one million people. Healing the trauma of the past lies in realizing our vision of a prosperous, reconciled Rwandan nation. To achieve this, we continue to build institutions and consolidate <coughs> our democratic governance. We seek to build a vibrant private sector with domestic and foreign investors spearheading wealth creation. We aspire to play our part in the competitive regional, continental, and global trade and investment. We want to become a prosperous country alongside other African countries that together form a community of peaceful nations that have a voice and a stake in the global political economy. The journey towards this vision is not easy for Rwanda and for Africa, but it is achievable. 
and we are making steady progress towards its realization. On the environmental front, we in Rwanda have begun to, to address our challenges in the broader context of confronting underdevelopment. More specifically, we have enacted environmental and land laws and created the respective implementing agencies. We are also at present revisiting, revising our conservation law to protect our biodiversity and natural resources. This is but a modest base from which to launch our conservation efforts. Ladies and gentlemen, whether we are part of the developed or developing world, we need to pull together in improving lives and saving the environment. And everyone and every country have roles to play. As noted earlier, I very much appreciate the fact that LSE is home to scholars that are actively engaged in various fields associated with the environment. I have also learned that you are a hub for promoting innovative mechanisms for restoring environmental balance, including the use of such instruments as carbon trading. I encourage you to put these knowledge resources to work for the cause of sustainable development. May I suggest that in your collaborative work with your African counterparts, you seriously reflect on, among other things, carbon trading and how to promote this innovative sector on our continent of those African counterparts, Rwanda is one. Carbon trading appears to be yet another field where our continent is lagging behind, as compared to Asia and Latin America. I'm told that only 3% of carbon trading projects come to Africa. We must improve this record. Your location in the industrial heartland of Europe gives you the comparative advantage of acquiring the very latest knowledge in this trade, knowledge that you can share with Rwanda and other African colleagues. In this respect, we look forward to having you in Rwanda for the upcoming Kigali Conference on the Environment next year. Distinguished audience, ladies and gentlemen, humanity has to work together to save itself by protecting the environment. I thank LSE once again for having me here to share some insights on this important subject. 
It has been a great pleasure to address you this evening, and I thank you for your kind attention. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Your Excellency. We have some time for an open question and answer session. Uh, what I would ask is that each of us who successfully catches my eye, and there are no preordained questions, and one gentleman has already succeeded, uh, is disciplined enough to both be succinct and I think it's right in the context, uh, give us their name and uh, if they have an organization or they're involved in something, tell us what that is. Though that is not essential if they really feel they cannot do it. Uh, the succinctness will allow me to take a number of questions and then ask His Excellency to respond not to one at a time but to a cluster. That is on the assumption that we have questions. Uh, I know we have one gentleman here. I'm got a second gentleman at the back, and I've got this lady to get us started. So these three. Sir, wait till the roving mic gets to you, and uh, perhaps initiate the good okay. habits by saying who you are and keeping your question relatively short. Thank okay. you. Okay. My name is Mr. Stefano Bonfa. I was consultant for international aids, several international aids in the world. At the moment, I have my own organization, that is dealing with sustainable development issue, especially in developing countries and in developed economies. I do appreciate the speech of His Excellency. What I want to ask you uh, concerning the sustainability and development issue, what is your, let's say, impression regarding the donor towards eliminating the let's say, what we have been talking, the development and the, the environmental issue. Your approach is very, your approach of integration and, let's say, and sustainability on environmental and economic and social is right. What is missing until now is to have an approach more from bottom up, where you can start with information, knowledge, and on knowledge, you develop your long-term strategies. And then from the long-term strategy, you start to develop your action plan, right. program, projects. This will eliminate it in thank a more holistic and comprehensive way. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. I think your question may have become a quite substantial comment. But I, 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 yes, I, uh, the, but I think the President has, has got the point. Uh, there was a gentleman right here, and there was a lady in the center, if she could prepare the question. Yes. Sir. Thank you, Mr. Chair. My name is Lukongo from Congo. I'm a writer based here in London. In the last 14 years, the Great Lake region has been destroyed. Not just the environment, but human being too. And it's interesting, if not a paradox, that the first lecture on human rights be launched and the first speaker is President Paul Kagame of Rwanda. Most of you have seen me outside here 
LSE day and night campaigning against the record of this man in our region. I'm going to ask this question, but before, allow me to say this. There will never be development in Africa, in our region, in Rwanda, in Congo, or wherever, without justice. And therefore, I would like to ask President Kagame, one, when are you going to apologize to your own people in Rwanda first, after putting them through what you put them through? One, invading Rwanda from Uganda, killing millions and millions of I, people. I think, I think, Mr. Kandi, I think if we could just move on the questions. Yeah, okay. Rather than the attached, but I'm exactly. not, trying to, I'm not and, trying to stop you. Okay. The question, please. Yeah. Shooting down Abiyarimana's plane and kick-starting the killing spree that so many Hutu and Tutsi killed. I, and then moving into Congo, raping, killing five million people and looting Congo's natural and mineral resources. My question is, do you really sleep at ease at night after so many killings? That's you. one. Thank you. I think, I think that might secondly, be... Secondly... I'm sorry. One, second, one may well be... One minute, please. Yes. Secondly, secondly, when you don't enjoy presidential immunity anymore, and when you don't enjoy the support of Britain and America, then when you are going to be tried for crime against humanity like Charles Taylor and many others, are you prepared for that? Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for both, both questions. Uh, we'll treat the first and second as a version of the first and, and the third as the second. But uh, I didn't mean that ironically. Thank you very much for the passion and restraint, uh, seriously, with which you put that point, and I'm sure the President will want to answer. But uh, we want to take the third uh, question, which was a lady who may now have a microphone. Yeah, thank you. I'm Gabi Hesselbein, London School of Economics from the Crisis States Research Center. We do research not only on Rwanda, but also on the Great Lakes region, and uh, I would like to center my question around that. Mr. President, you were pointing out that security is one of the central issues for development and environmental sustainability, and one of the persisting problems of security in the Great Lakes regions is the FDLR in Congo. This problem has been around since many, many years, and I don't see a sustainable long-term solution for any of the countries in the Great Lakes without resolving that problem. I would like to know what can Rwanda do to solve that problem and what can the international community and the United Kingdom in particular do to support solving that problem? Uh, thank you. I think we'll now give His Excellency an opportunity to respond. I think it would be good if we all allowed the response to unfold, given the uh, articulate way in which the points have been put. His Excellency. Yes, thank you. Well, uh, I think the, I take note that the first wasn't a question, but rather a comment which we, we took on board. Uh, so then I go to the second comment which had also some questions. Well, the, the, the question raised uh, by the second person who asked is probably a very simple one. Uh, 
I said that um, the question raised uh, on the second part by the second speaker is probably much simpler. Well, I was asked whether I sleep at ease. If, if there is anything I don't like in my life is my sleep. I sleep very well at ease. And uh, fortunately, these days, in the last years, this sleep is also enjoyed by many in Rwanda because they have peace and security and stability that has not been the case for many decades. That's one. Well, if I may shed a few things. I think the, the speaker... compensated for a lot of vigor in his speech, uh, compensated for, for substance by, by a lot of vigor with which he was speaking. But I think the history of our region is known. It's, it's not uh, a secret. And Rwanda and, and, and Congo, much as they have a lot in common, uh, a lot in common in terms of uh, colonial history, a lot of common in terms of people. People share, they, they, many of them actually uh, share, I mean, have blood relationship. Only borders as they are being drawn uh, so many years ago. Some people are left on one side of the border and others were left on the other side. But the most recent history was that of uh, what happened in my country, Rwanda. The genocide that took place in 1994. The history of, of it is very long. I probably won't take you into that. But it has a lot to do with colonialism. It has a lot to do mainly by bad leaders who took over the administration after independence. And this problem is not unique to Rwanda. It, it was the same with the Congo as well. Congo witnessed a lot of problems during colonial days as well as after colonial period because of, again, leaders. I, 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 I guess the person who asked the question is very well aware of that. Under, under Mobutu, since the 1960s, of the time he died in the 90s. Well, Congo is very wealthy indeed. It's a very rich country. But I'm sure my friend who asked the question knows that during colonial days, during the time of independence, after the time, in fact, up to this moment, the Congolese have never developed, have never benefited from this immense wealth. He should have helped this audience by explaining the reasons. It's not Rwanda. It's not Kagame. That's a question he should answer someday when you have time for other debates. 
with, with the immense wealth of Congo, only rich countries have become richer because of that wealth, not the people of Congo. And this has nothing to do with Rwanda. There are no roads, no <coughs> clinics, no hospitals, no nothing. He knows that. My friend knows that. And I'm sure he could have helped Congo by being there and raising some of these questions with the people who manage the country. But the insecurity that has affected my country since 1994. The 1994 genocide is not blamed on Congo. If, if, if anybody did that, it would be not true and would be not correct. But the situation after, when people who committed a genocide of these one million people went to Congo and stayed there and benefited from one, the first regime of President Mobutu at the time he was there. And these people, the whole former government that killed our people went to to Congo with the arms and, they, and there were refugee camps up along the border in, in DRC with, with arms in the camps with tanks with armored personnel carriers with anti-aircraft weapons in what were referred to as refugee camps then and benefiting from the government from the administration of Congo and this was the genesis of the problems that followed because these people were organizing and preparing to come back to Rwanda to attack Rwanda and carry out and continue with the genocide because they were saying they had not finished the job they intended to finish and that was to kill all Tutsis and there should never be any Tutsi not only in Rwanda but in the whole region and this is really what brought these problems that the gentleman was referring to in a, in a distorted way. So, the Kagame is, is addressing, is talking about, and maybe earlier in my introduction it was lightly mentioned, I became a refugee when I was three years old and grew up in Uganda as a refugee. I was in a refugee camp for 27 years. So I, 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 I was able to go back to Rwanda only when we organized ourselves and had to fight our way to go back to Rwanda to restore our own rights, not only the rights of our own rights, but the rights of other Rwandans. So my, my, my life has been that of struggling for my own rights and the rights of my people. It hasn't been anything similar to what the gentleman was talking about. And in that struggle, in fact, we were also associated and helped, and helped the, the, the people who are leading Congo today to be there where they are today. This is again a fact of history. So I, I don't think we, we, we needed the kind of distortion to of what is really happening. So, Rwanda 
and Congo can do better by working together and dealing with the real issues and the real issues of underdevelopment which Congo faces more than any other country perhaps although it's one of the richest countries in the world if we had leaders if we had citizens of Congo who understood this problem they would help their own people and their own country and they would help all of us so on the third question uh, this is uh, about FDRR FDRR are those uh, they call them negative forces in a part of the world these are the forces the, the former forces of Rwandan army that got involved in the genocide that uh, uh, former Rwandan forces, but also militias that killed and, and fled to Congo, and they are still there in Congo again. Well, a lot we've been struggling with this problem for the last 14 years. The international community seems to say they understand this problem. We all understand the problem. The administration in Congo understands this problem but it has never been dealt with effectively and uh, it's because sometimes maybe it requires the hard task the pe people are not ready to carry out and sometimes that is confronting the truth and confronting them and, and dealing with them in terms of disarming them and so on. But in any case the problem has subsided in a sense that there used to be in tens of thousands armed causing insecurity in the whole of Western Congo and a big part of Congo, not only with the aim of attacking Rwanda, but also of, and they had also been actually terrorizing Congolese citizens. Uh, and many of them were repatriated, but there was a period when we, our forces, our armed forces went into Congo. And most of these were fought and dispersed and killed. And today, even between us and the Congolese government, we est estimate that there are about 8,000 of them still in that part of Eastern Congo, from probably over 100,000 that used to exist from 1994, those who were under arms and had been crossed. So, the problem, so to speak, has subsided, but it is still there, and it can only be eliminated completely by a government that uh, wants to deal with it in, in the Congo, and, and we've been trying to work with them to see how we deal with this remaining problem. Hopefully, with the presence of the UN that is in the Congo, which also recognizes that this is a serious problem, we could eventually deal with it. Uh, that, that's the only thing I can say. Thank you for that full reply. There's a forest of hands. This gentleman has sort of booked some space, and we'll take this gentleman uh, in the jacket just behind you, I'm afraid, sir. And we need uh, a lady uh, whose hand caught me. I think I believe in gender equality at the Center for the Study of Human Rights. So we'll take this gentleman first, please, sir. Uh, name and fairly succinct question, because we do want to get some more in. 
Um, my name is Scott Burnett. I'm a graduate student at the LSE. Um, Mr. President, um, I noticed um, when we registered earlier on this week that there are very, very few Africans studying at the LSE. What action are you and your government taking to get Africans into institutes of higher learning around the world, specifically schools such as the LSE? Um, are we paying for uh, um, bursaries, etc.? For example, my scholarship is paid for by the British taxpayer as opposed to my taxpayer back home in South Africa. Um, are we as Africans really <laughs> investing in, in um, building these knowledge institutions to which you refer? Thank that, you. That's just proof that we are a very open church here. We'll take questions <laughs> about anything. Uh, this lady just directly behind the person. And again, name first and succinct um, question, please. My name is Tanumai Varganam. I'm a lawyer. And um, Mr. President, I have a question about uh, the rule of law in Rwanda. We, we know that you recently abolished the death penalty, but at the same time, it is a criminal offence to negate the issue of genocide. And at a time when some of those accused of crimes who are in Arusha and in other places may be taken to Rwanda for trial, what is the prospect of them having a fair trial in a, a situation where there is a, a, a fundamental criminalization of what may be their political position. Thank you. And, and, and just on that point... If, if very may, much on that point. On that point. Um, there has been some concern about the, the role of the civil defense um, grouping who were deployed around the country, that some civilians have been terrorized um, because of the increased militarization, sadly, whenever there is a war situation, maybe that, that is the fallout. But what is the real role of that civilian force, which don't carry uniforms and don't openly carry arms, but nevertheless appear to fulfill some kind of militia role within the populace? Thank you very much. We'll take this gentleman who's now got the microphone in his right hand. Yes, hi. My name is Jesse Bernstein, and I'm also a graduate student here at the LSE. I have a question in regards to refugees. Uh, you yourself mentioned that you were a refugee, and I wonder about the thousands of refugees who still exist, Rwandese refugees, who still exist in the Great Lakes region and throughout the world, many of whom are here in the UK. I wonder if you think if it's safe for all of them to return to Rwanda. Thank you. Jesse, you ought to say your MSc human rights as well as part of the traditions that we, we boast about our affiliation. Uh, and this gentleman is going to be the last in this cycle of questions. A name and short question. Yes, my name is uh, Ludovic Ndua. I'm from the Ivory Coast, formerly called the Ivory Coast, but now it's Côte d'Ivoire. His Excellency, uh, <laughs> my question is quite simple. Uh, one of the... Uh, challenges in Africa uh, concerning development is uh, mainly conflict. And uh, the main, we might argue that later, the main roots of the conflict stem from, uh, I mean, uh, uh, co uh, mainly a kind of uh, readjustment to uh, colonial masters' way of seeing things. Um, the example I'm going to take is obviously from my country where uh, because of the current government, which has got, no, which has got different view to, uh, dif views different from uh, the, the colonial master, 
has been uh, put into trouble so far until uh, uh, we're trying to solve the problem. Uh, this, uh, I mean, the, the, international the, the international community tried to do something, but they haven't succeeded, and they couldn't succeed it until now we are trying to sort ourselves. Uh, 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 ourselves. Uh, so, uh, I mean, how do you see that colonial readjustment, uh, I mean, the, that readjustment to the colonial ways of seeing things, which really put man, many troubles in, Af in Africa, in the Ivory Coast, and even in your, in your, in your, in your country? Secondly, uh, you know, uh, colonial legacy has been very, very much deep-rooted in African Africa, particularly in the, in the educational system. And uh, how do you work in partnership with other, 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 uh, your, your other fellow presidents in order to sort that problem, particularly as uh, one of the former speakers said, how do you uh, get your, your, your fellow citizens to come to, for example, open countries where they can gain a very uh, good education uh, and uh, very, uh, get rid of those colonial uh, legacies within themselves and in their mind? Uh, because now we need to get rid of those and uh, move on. The president who have been leading the countries have been uh, affected by the, that colonial legacy. They've always de dealt uh, in a way that uh, they fulfilled the, 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 wishes, the wishes of uh, the colonial masters. And now we need to go on, move on, and think of uh, the development as such. And, and thirdly... Uh, I think perhaps... No, no, my last point, my last point. The last my, point is yes, one my last point, my last point, please. Uh, uh, there, are, there are some development theories which have been developed by even uh, one, of, uh, one of the famous English scholars, Ricardo, uh, I don't know, Ricardo, who talked about... Uh, well, uh, perhaps a question, because I really, really have to go to the president. Yes, we want to okay. get lots of questions okay, in. Okay. Uh, which Thank is uh, uh, comparative advantages. Which, this is a theory. I don't want to go in, in no, depth of that. No, please not. Okay. But the, the thing is, the thing is, it, it sets some countries in, in uh, its continuation of uh, division of labor for some countries to produce a particular type of product because that's where the advantages stem from. How do you uh, find a way of going around that? Because if we want to really tackle that, that's, uh, I mean, it, brings, it always brings issues. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, Your Excellency, four mm -hmm. separate sets of questions, I'm afraid. <laughs> Again, um, well, the, the first of this section was um, what we are doing, maybe to send more Africans, uh, our people, to study in places like uh, LSC. Uh, I think we are trying. In fact, um, in, in our presence here, in, even at LSC, even in the morning, there are discussions going on. Uh, between LSE and, and our delegation. But there, there are already people from LSE working in Rwanda and so on. One of the things we are looking at is how LSE can participate actively in uh, uh, developing the capacities of our knowledge institutions and also how even our students can be our people can be trained here at LSE. And we are doing it even with other institutions. We have uh, programs with the different universities here in the UK uh, where there are these exchanges and mainly our, our 
our people uh, mainly in higher or going for higher education have been benefiting from these exchanges and are already registering and have already registered with these higher learning institutions. So we, we, we are very keen on doing that and, and the point is very clear. In fact, it's not only happening here in the UK, it has been happening with other European countries. Some institutions of higher learning have provided this uh, uh, facility that our people can come uh, and train, uh, even as far as uh, United States. Different institutions have been very helpful in this matter. So I, I take note that this is important and we, we are making progress on it. Then the second uh, was about rule of law. Uh, again, it depends on um, how people want to, to look at problems. Uh, uh, one, there was acknowledgement that there was the abolition of death penalty in Rwanda. That is true. And uh, it did not happen by accident. Uh, it is because uh, the, the people of Rwanda, the, the institutions, the leaders debated the merits, the, the merits of, of having a death penalty in, in our situation and in our laws. And in the end, we reached a conclusion uh, that we abolish death penalty. So I don't want uh, somebody to give an impression that this happened by accident or in a situation that doesn't expect the rule of law and so on and so forth even if that is what one may want to create as an impression for, for other reasons. And again, so death penalty has been abolished, that's for a fact, and it has a history and has what we believe is good in it for us. Maybe some other people elsewhere in the world who have abolished it have found something good as well. So, And, and again, here I want here to emphasize but maybe I should come to that later. That people should not uh, create an impression or assume that they are the ones who know better what is good for other people. I think other people, Rwandans, we in Rwanda know what is good for us. It's not uh, somebody from human rights, this or NGO, this or from anywhere who really knows better what is good for us, because sometimes that is an impression that is created. Even when you do something that is good or for the country or that is appreciated somewhere else, they want to come and appear like they are the ones who made you do it. <laughs> and I think there is a lot of assuming out there, <laughs> you know. But I think it would help us very well if we, we also respected others and, and, and their, their capacity and knowledge and need and desire to overcome their difficulties. So now let me come to the, again, insinuation that accompanied this about negating genocide, being criminalized, and then mixed with the political people suffering for 
their political positions. I think this is just a, a political statement that was being made. Uh, well, first of all, negating genocide. I, I think I have no apologies to make that uh, I, I view it and we people in Rwanda view it as being wrong. So I have no apologies to make that we view it as being wrong, negating genocide. Again, that's for, for a fact and for granted. But as I know, as far as I know, even in some other countries, uh, I was reading of a case in Austria where somebody, uh, I think, was arrested for negating Holocaust. So negating Holocaust is a crime, but negating genocide shouldn't be a crime, maybe because it happened in Rwanda or in Africa. Again, that is something that uh, I think it, it, it should not really be. Now, but to, to, to persecute or to victimize somebody uh, and attribute to him or her an offense he or she has, they have not committed, is wrong. It would be wrong, certainly. If somebody was just expressing their opinion rightly, uh, and somebody twisted it and, and, and said it meant something else and, and on that basis victimized this person, it would be wrong. There's no question about it. And we share the same view. But why should you assume that it is you and maybe others who know what is right or what is wrong and other people or people in Rwanda don't know what is right and don't know what is wrong? I think it is a wrong assumption. So Rwanda, and I don't know by the way how much the, the person who asked this question knows about Rwanda or the progress that has been made. Because some people argue and want to argue as if from uh, informed position about Rwanda when they have no knowledge about Rwanda or have never been there or apart from uh, some of the not so correct stuff they read or on the internet or from different groups. So I, I think it is, it is not correct. So death penalty abolished, negating genocide is wrong, and we have institutions, we train people, we are going, maybe we haven't trained them enough, we've always gone for a long time to make a distinction <laughs> of, of what is an offense or a crime and what is not. It's not the assumption to be made by those who think they know what is wrong and what is right, and it is their, their monopoly. So it is not anybody's monopoly. Uh, so, and the political issues in Rwanda increasingly have been managed quite well. That's why Rwanda is, is, is progressing, is stable, has security. It's people. Over nine, we have now about 9.2 million people in Rwanda. With all, this, we, we, with all these difficulties we have had in our history, today uh, they are happy and happily rebuilding their lives and, and getting on, and those who assume they are not happy, they are doing it on, not on their behalf. It's their, they have their own problems which they need to attend to. Then some concerns of local defense, militia, well, 
concerns by who? Again, I think it is this person asking the question who has concerns, not the people of Rwanda who have concerns. Uh, these are these are these people who are called local defense. This is a, a group. In fact, you find them at every sector level. But these are people chosen by those people themselves at the sector level. And it was intended for their own security. It started way back when we had serious security problems of caused by insurgents that was coming from outside Rwanda, mainly from DRC. And communities organized groups that would ensure security for those sectors or for villages. And later on, in fact, uh, when, when security returned to Rwanda, we wanted to get rid of this arrangement until the people themselves say, no, but this is our arrangement. We want to maintain this for our own security. And they are known, they are people known, they are governed by laws, they are under supervision of Ministry of Internal Affairs, they work closely with the police. The people of Rwanda want them. They have they have not had problems with that. And somebody sits there and thinks it is a problem for the people of Rwanda. And if it is your problem, why is it your problem? So local defense, yes, they are there. They move in broad daylight. They are known by the people they serve. Why should you have a problem when the people of Rwanda do not have a problem with the arrangement? The other day, you know, it's, it's interesting. You see, again, I think some of the issues we have to deal with here, uh, again, maybe have colonial connotation or have other problems. For example, another time we had somebody complaining when people were discussing, we haven't institu institutionalized that yet, but we intend to do it. But during the debates, people are talking about, the Rwandans were talking about having national service for our people to serve and benefit from some basic military training and knowledge so that in time of need they can. Now, some, some similar people started making noise about it, yet we learn it's common in other places. I remember during the day, some of our, the days when there were so many NGOs, so many people in Rwanda after the genocide, we used to have people worked with, and they would tell us at some time and at some point, and they say they have to go back to their country. I remember we had people serving from Switzerland in our country, and they reached a certain point. They said, no, they have to go back. Time is up for them. They have to go and serve and train and in the, in the national service. So why is it right in Switzerland and it is wrong in Rwanda, depending on how it is managed and the purpose it serves. So these are some of the things really that uh, I think people should uh, start getting calm about and, and, and realize that uh, sometimes what is good for the goose is good for the ground as well. Yes. Uh, so let me quickly touch thousands of refugees. Again, I don't know 
how informed the person talking about refugees is. But we have, in fact, in 19, period between 1994 and 1997, we had 3 million people in the countries as refugees and, and probably a few more others in adding to that who were displaced internally. The, all this problem has been sorted out. The people that are refugees are uh, in the category of refugees are in the RRC. And uh, in fact, there are, there are refugees from, from Congo who are in Rwanda. There are also refugees who are in Congo, who, uh, who are in Congo from Rwanda and those who are in Rwanda from Congo. Congo, which had millions of these Rwandan refugees, today do not have more than 10,000. So we reduce the number from 3 million to 10,000. And most of them are these in the groups that were mentioned called FDRR. The very few others who are remaining in Tanzania, when the, we were working with the Tanzania and and and, and, and High Commissioner for Refugees to, to repatriate them. They preferred to cross and went to Uganda. They, in Uganda, there are about 5,000 of them. And one of the reasons why they went to Uganda, not coming to Rwanda, was not political, but economic. Because they said there is no land in Rwanda. And, and where they were in Tanzania, they were able to cultivate and each one would maybe cover three, four, ten hectares in Rwanda, they won't find them. And it's not a political problem. It's not the government of Rwanda. It's not Kagame. It's not anybody who made Rwanda be the kind of size it is. So they prefer to go to Uganda because they want land, bigger land than they can have in Rwanda. So I, I don't know the person who raised this, how much, again, he knows about Rwanda, the, the thousands he's talking about. Now, here in Europe, how many refugees are here in the UK, to your knowledge? A while ago, our people were meeting Rwandans here in the UK, who came and they were in their hundreds. They're not refugees. If you have refugees, maybe you have three or ten or, or, or twenty and some of them are refugees who have preferred to be refugees for their own problems. They cannot fit in Rwanda because either economically they think they will not make it, or politically, yes, if, if they have genocide ideology, they think it will be uncomfortable for them, and no apologies to that, for that. But all Rwandans are welcome to Rwanda, and we have created conditions that will accommodate all Rwandans. Uh, well, there are a few people who are here who are genocide suspects, and, uh, suspect, uh, suspects, and uh, our, our institutions are working together with institutions here actually for their return to Rwanda uh, to, to answer for, for, for their... So th there is no issue about refugees as, as, as to was put. Now, the bigger and the more complicated problem uh, question, which was in, I could, I could summarize it. Uh, the colonial situation. I, I, I think Africans are the ones who can really 
make a decision on this. Yeah, and, and, and you simply have to, to stand up to the challenges created by the colonial situation and, and, and also get rid of the mentality that is mainly on our side. I, I, I think before we address what we attribute to the former colonial masters or anything, I think we need to look at ourselves first. Uh, we, we need to liberate ourselves even in, you know, mentally and, and, and otherwise in our own attitudes and simply stand up for ourselves and, and, and deal with our challenges and only insist that we deal with the, any other people in this world as partners rather than as our masters. But it has to start from home. It has to start from Ivory Coast. It has to start from Rwanda. It has to start from uh, individuals who, who must do the right thing and assert their own selves and uh, stand up f for their own dignity and, 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 and take responsibility for their failures as well as enjoy successes over their efforts. Thank, thank, thank you. I think because we started a little late, we will run for another few minutes and take some, some questions. There's a tremendous number of hands reaching up. Uh, I'm just looking at this. We favored that. The gentleman in the red T-shirt, two from the end, and then we'll take this lady with the, if I may say, long dark hair who's behind you, I'm afraid. And then we'll take one more. We'll take this gentleman who's standing rather proprietorily beside a camera. Uh, if you could be extremely quick, because I'll be asking the president to be quick, and I don't want him to be embarrassed by the length of his answer being required by the questions. Uh, I think, which one are we taking first? We've got this gentleman. Yes, sir. Name and very brief question. Uh, hi, my name's Laurie Bennett, and I work for a communications consultancy called Futera that uh, specializes in sustainable development. And my question's actually about communicating the relationship between development and environmental sustainability in Rwanda. Um, Your Excellency, you're in an interesting position because you've got a, a good knowledge of, the, of this relationship and a great agency to create change. I was just wondering what your intentions were for communicating the importance of the relationship between development and environmental sustainability back in Rwanda. Thank you. Uh, it's a short question. I'm terrified it requires a very long answer, but I'm, I'm waiting now for the microphone to get yeah. to the lady who already has it. Thank you. Yeah. Um, my name is Gabrielle Elkheim. I'm from Zimbabwe. Um, and I wanted to ask Mr. President, as a leader in Africa and as the Vice President of the AU, what you think the responsibility of the leadership in Africa is with regards to countries that are digressing developmentally, such as Zimbabwe? Uh, thank you, Gabrielle, for that succinct and interesting question. And the gentleman standing beside the camera, sir, the last question in the evening before I turn to the President uh, and, and then finish the evening. Sir. Uh, Your Excellency, my name is Ayub Mzei from Ben Television, Sky Channel 194. Um, first of all, I want to commend you on the steps of, that you have taken. I myself am a person from the Great Lakes region, the steps that you have taken to stabilize your country. Question. Your country is formerly a Francophone country. I'm trying to develop the point that uh, the former Brit British Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, was asked, what is the new agenda for the Commonwealth? She said, which new agenda? What is wrong with the old one? Now, the question for you is that your country is joining the Commonwealth. And the Commonwealth is associated with um, no pace setting, no global leadership, and no business innovation. 
We are also joining the East African community whereby there is a gap between perception and reality. What do you think your country is going to benefit from these two organizations? Thank you. Thank you very much. And I trust you won't edit the President's reply in your coverage. <laughs> we're, very, we're very anxious about that in Britain at the moment for various reasons to do with the Commonwealth leader. Uh, your Excellency, you have, I think, relatively shortish time, but do uh, feel free to, okay. to, to answer each question fully. Indeed, there's a, a link between sustainable development and environment, and uh, as I have uh, already explained, uh, while we, we want prosperity, we want growth, we want development, we, we, we can't do it at the cost of uh, uh, our environment being degraded day in, day out, because in the end, it erodes on the growth and development we are talking about. And as I was saying it here, we, we, uh, again I mentioned part of it in my speech, we, we just don't talk about it here. We, we, we do explain to our people the, 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 the need for this and, and uh, uh, to keep their environment clean, uh, uh, stable uh, and intact uh, as well as be able to develop. So we, we take the message to people and explain and I think they are part of it. And possibly if people, some of you will come to Rwanda will witness some of the uh, results uh, coming from that. The, the, the cleanliness, the planting of, uh, we, we are involved in uh, reforestation uh, and, and preserving our, our lakes and, and rivers and uh, uh, everything that uh, is in our environment is taken good care of within our means and, and the desire is there. And the population has become part of that process. Uh, number two, on Zimbabwe, uh, well, uh, let me make a, a small correction, but it, it doesn't take away respons the responsibility I have. Uh, yes, I, I was the first vice president of the African Union, but it is rotational. So after some a year or two, I handed over to, to other people. But that doesn't really take away the responsibilities I have as an African and one of the leaders. And uh, some of the things done in Africa, for example, when you look at the, I mean, in NEPAD, the New African uh, <coughs> Initiative for Development of Africa, and the peer review, these are some of the things uh, done to encourage Africans, uh, not only encourage them, but actually even enable them by working together to do the right things. Uh, I, I, and this is much better than simply waiting for somebody to do the wrong thing and you have a mechanism to whip this one and do that. And, you know, it, it's better when it is collective responsibility being engendered and in the process uh, we find a forum where we are able to tell frankly uh, talk to each other frankly and, and uh, see how we can uh, take corrective uh, 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 and collective measures. Uh, well, this may not work for every case or will not work uh, always, but it is the right way to go. People must take responsibility 
but this, as I know, with the Zimbabwe, there are African efforts within SADC and also at the level of AU, and they have entrusted President Mbeki of South Africa with the responsibility to carry out the necessary back and forth efforts to try and deal with the situation. But very clear, again, most of the changes probably will come from within Zimbabwe itself. Uh, but um, I know I have not satisfied you in my answer. So, uh, but for, for 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 the good of uh, for, for for this to serve this uh, moment, we, I will stop there and we will see what next can be done. Francophone country, well, even maybe I don't know whether you 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 could be saying that. Uh, as a Francophone country, because of being Francophone, we are doing better, therefore we shouldn't leave it and go to something that you've described the way you did. But um, for, for us, there are reasons why, for example, we, we've been looking to become members of Commonwealth and, and East African community, already the member that we are. East African community, the countries there in Rwanda, Burundi, Kenya, Tanzania, and Uganda, really, if you look at social, economic, and, and, and even political aspects of our people's lives, they are broadly shared in this geographical space. And as I mentioned to you, if you remember, you find part, parts of, of Rwanda before colonial, I mean, before colonial days, certain parts used to belong to Rwanda, and now they are now in Tanzania, in Uganda, or they are in Congo, and so on and so forth. But that means that these people actually have, uh, well, the, the, uh, one simple example is if you look at um, the northern part of our country, the place called the Kisoro, Kisoro in, in, in Uganda. The, the ambassador of Uganda is here. Uh, uh, I'm saying it confident that I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> he used to be part of Rwanda. And in fact, the people there speak in Rwanda. And not only that, we, you have people on our side who have uncles and aunties and the other side, they are the same family that was just split by a borderline. This is a fact. So <laughs> these people who were born yesterday can't, can't change that. <laughs> yes. Somebody was saying it is not true. It, it, it is true. It is a fact. You can't change it. <laughs> so anyway, the, so this commonality is very important for development. And in fact, as, as one big space of a population, for example, East African community, East African community having 120 million people is, is, is good for business, is good for dealing with all sorts of problems. We, are, we have forged a common, we are towards forging a common market, we are moving towards uh, even political federation. And, and this really creates a, uh, an entity that is viable economically and in other aspects. So 
if it is not working today or if an organization you are talking about is not working today it's our business to make it work but the principle of, of forging these regional groupings or other groupings the principle is good but it's the people there to make it work to the point that it serves them the best way they should be served it's not commonwealth that in itself by the name will serve you it's how the people there discuss and agree how this coming together will serve them so if we belong to, to that then we will happily make our own contribution however modest but I'm sure there are others eager to make the same contribution so really for us uh, we, we are happy to, to be moving towards joining Commonwealth and probably uh, East Africa we are already in East African community and probably it will make it easier for people to come and uh, and join LSE and, uh, and others once, uh, <laughs> thank you very much I'll just say goodbye to you I think that uh, round of applause rather uh, sums up the evening, but it falls to me to uh, plug uh, events at LSE both generally and specifically. The Centre for the Study of Human Rights has an event on the Commission for Equality and Human Rights on October the 25th. It has Ravindra Singh QC talking about Iraq, what went wrong on the 14th of November. It has the head of Human Rights Watch, Your Excellency, on, uh, on the 6th of uh, December, and no doubt there will be some questions to him on the basis of what's been heard tonight. Uh, I would ask you, please, just to pay attention to the following remark. Would you be kind enough uh, to remain in your places uh, until uh, the President has, has left the room? This is purely logistical. There are a lot of people here, and there is obviously uh, a desire to manage uh, the end of the evening as well as the start of the evening has been managed. So may I remind you of that? May I thank you for the uh, clarity of the questions and for the, uh, for the way in which they were put. There is clearly a degree of strong feeling in the room, and I'm grateful to those who were able to articulate their passionate positions as clearly as they did. I have to say, however, and these are my concluding remarks, I have to thank primarily our guest speaker, His Excellency Paul Kagame, for a most extraordinary tour de force, not only in the excellence, in the honesty, and in the depth of the speech which he delivered, but in the quite amazing clarity of his answers, in the direct way in which he dealt with and did not dodge any issues. And it was a remarkable experience for me as chair. I trust for the rest of you in the hall to see such a representative of his country acquit himself in that fashion. So I'd like you all, remembering that you have to wait in your place at the conclusion of this, <laughs> I'd like you all to join with me in uh, uh, the thanks in the traditional fashion for a leader, His Excellency Paul Kagame, President of Rwanda.